0: All right, well we've been doing a series on things in the New Testament that God has told us to continue in. So let's do a little quiz. This is the last of this series by the way and it's not something we're to continue in, it's what we're not to continue in. So if you want to turn to Romans chapter 6, that's where we're going to be. Romans chapter 6. And this is an extremely important message because honestly this message is what will really make a difference in your Christian life if you get a hold of this message. Many Christians live defeated, still as if they are a slave to sin. They don't understand the true victorious Christian life that God wants for you to have. But Let me tell you, the key to the true victorious Christian life is in Romans chapter 6. And it is a transforming truth that when you grasp hold of it, It will change your life in a very real way. Now, obviously, salvation changed us, right? But it's understanding the power that we have through the salvation in Christ that we can have that victorious Christian life. In Romans chapter 6, we see what we're not to continue in. Now, again, what does the word continue mean? The the Greek word menno. What does it mean? What is the idea of the word? To remain, to dwell, to feel comfortable, to feel at home. Now that's a very important thing when we read Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. And let's go ahead and read starting at verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we remain in sin? Shall we dwell in sin? Shall we feel at home in sin? God forbid. God forbid there is a double negative in greek we do not have double negatives in english unless you live in the south but a double negative in greek is a strong emphatic no so in some languages it does exist it means no cannot happen impossible well instead of writing it out like that they said god forbid How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing this, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For then he died, he died unto sin once, but that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are Now, there is a whole lot in this passage. However many remember when we had Dr. Ernie Childs come for a Bible conference several years ago. You know, I am thoroughly convinced I could preach four years worth of messages and recycle them, and most people here would never remember any of them, I'm telling you. And even those that are here, after four years, you're probably not going to remember most of them. Dr. Childs came for a Bible conference and he preached a series on victorious Christian living and the entire week used this passage. So do I plan on covering all this in one week? Probably not. Okay, because there is so much packed into these verses to help us understand the importance of having a victorious Christian life. But I'm going to try to break it down to three things that we must do in order not to continue in sin. First of all, we must understand the reality of our freedom. The reality of our freedom. We'll see that in verses 1 through 10. I am no longer a slave to sin. I am dead to sin, which makes me free from sin. That's a great thought, isn't it? secondly in verses 11 and 12 we'll study the reckoning of our freedom just because it's so doesn't mean we reckon it so i reckon then our last point will be the resolve of our freedom and we'll look at that in the rest of the passage in verses 13 through 18 so let's start with the reality of our freedom paul asked this question Kind of a rhetorical question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, after all, if God is gracious and going to forgive me when I sin, well, then shouldn't I continue in sin? Because that's going to manifest the grace of God even more. By the way, there are some out there that teach such a weird thing that, well, because God is so gracious, you can just do whatever you want. He's just going to continue to forgive you. That is presumptuous on the grace of God. And by the way, should never be a thought that crosses the Christian mind that, well, I'm just going to continue in sin. He says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That is absurd teaching and thinking. Now, there are also those because you and I, at least I hope you believe this, believe in eternal security, right? So once saved, we're always saved. Now, we do know there's many in this area who are free will Baptists who believe that you can sin your way out of salvation. And one of the arguments they use against eternal security is there are those that teach because we believe in eternal security, then we believe we have a license to sin. They argue against the doctrine of eternal security by saying, if you cannot lose your salvation, then you can sin all you want after salvation. Now, take that statement just as it is. Is that a true statement? Can I sin all I want after I'm saved? The answer is truly yes. But there's something that should change. My desire should change. I should no longer feel at home in sin. I should no longer feel comfortable in sin. I should no longer dwell there. It should not be because my desire should change from wanting to sin to serving God. So when they accuse us of that, well, you can sin all you want. Well, that is true. But once I was truly became a child of God, God put in me a new spirit that changed me that I don't desire to sin. So let me ask this question. What sin remains in your life that you are more comfortable keeping than forsaking? What sin is in your life that you're more comfortable keeping than forsaking? Because Christian, let me tell you something. We sing a song about, it says, all the habits of life, though harmless they seem. But let me tell you, sin is still sin. And when God convicts you of sin, you need to confess and forsake that sin and get rid of that sin in your life. But many Christians are comfortable still being a gossip, still following materialism, still, whatever the case may be, I think a big one I see in Christianity is pride. Because pride is a very hard to self-diagnose sin. And pride comes very naturally for all of us, doesn't it? We think a lot of ourselves. But you and I need to see sin the way God sees sin. You and I need to see sin the way God sees sin. It's not a little white lie. I've been told also before, sometimes you have to lie to people for their own benefit. Like what? You ever hear that one? It's like the other day we were going through the city budget again, and the city manager must have been warned by the financial director that I fight debt in our city every time. And he looks me right in the eye as we get to the debt page, and he goes, I want to remind you commissioners that debt for a city is a very good idea to have. And he's looking me right in the eye. And if we're going to be asking for more debt, which... There is a possibility we may have to take a loan for something. You already want to have debt before you ask for debt. And he's looking me right in the eye the whole time he's saying this. Unfortunately, in government, what he's saying is true because the system is so broken, you have to already be doing the wrong thing in order to get more debt. But anyhow, it's horrible. But you know what the problem is? As many Christians apply this to their lives, that debt is okay. The Bible says, oh, no, man, anything. So why do we think having, I understand you gotta have a place to live, okay? And so I'm not trying to talk out both sides of my mouth, but you know, everybody has some kind of debt, right? Because if you're not paying a mortgage, you're paying rent, which is still a debt, okay? So it's it's there. I mean, I don't know anybody or very few people that have enough money to pay cash for the house, okay? but what i'm talking about besides the necessities people will have you know thirty thousand dollars in credit card debt for all the frivolous things that they want but don't need because they had to have had to have had to have all the toys and let me tell you something it goes right back to what i said earlier materialism there's a difference between needs and wants are there not But we need to view the sin the way God does. You see, God doesn't classify and say, well, you know what? That's just a little white lie. Well, that gossip was actually a prayer request. No, God still calls it sin. And so do we need to recognize it as sin. And we need to recognize sin cost God his own dear son dying on the cross of Calvary. You understand Jesus Christ shed his blood not for anything he had done. He was beaten, he was bruised, not for his sin because he had none, but for mine. God says all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And we need to understand God hates sin. And Christian, you and I need to get a good, healthy view of the way God sees sin. But we like to play and dabble. This one's okay. I'm going to get away with it. I'm not that bad compared to everybody else. Which in and of itself is a sin against God. Because God said we're not to compare ourselves among ourselves. But our standard is Jesus Christ. And we all fall woefully short. So verse 2. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Okay. When I was born, I was a slave to sin, right? I was a sinner by nature. I was a sinner by choice. My parents never taught me how to throw a temper tantrum. They never taught me how to lie, how to steal, how to cuss, how to do all these things. But I learned them, didn't I? I was a slave to sin. But when I became a child of God, I died to sin. You know what that did? That freed me from sin. I am dead to sin I no longer have to serve sin I am dead but yet I hear this excuse from Christians so often I couldn't help myself the answer is yes you could because you're dead to sin now before you were saved you're right you couldn't help yourself because you were a slave to sin but now you're dead to sin and you can help yourself so we got to stop using the old-worldly excuse by the way Don't expect from the lost person then to act like a Christian because they truly can't help themselves. They are a slave still to sin. Right? Say, preacher, you're getting all excited this morning. I hope you are too because this is good stuff. But when I say I can't help myself, that is denying the power of God that has created in you a new man. Since I am dead to sin, I'm no longer bound to sin. Galatians 4, 9. But now, after that, ye have known God, or rather are known of God. How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Paul is asking the Galatians, I don't get it. God has delivered you. You are now a child of God. God has you in his family. You're now part of his family, but yet you want to turn back to the weak and beggarly elements of this world and go back in bondage to it. What are you thinking, Christian? But how often, if we're honest with ourselves, especially when we were first saved, did we sit there and long for the good old days, if you will, at times, when we take our eyes off of Christ, when we would fail to be in his word, when we had failed to be keeping our mind focused on Christ, how many times of your life have the weak and beggarly elements of this world looked enticing? Christian, we don't have to go back to Him. We don't have to go back to Him. We're free! So then Paul gives two illustrations of our death. One of baptism and one of being planted. So let's look at baptism first here in verse 3 it says know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death now baptism does not save right we we understand and we know that There are those that teach in baptismal regeneration that believe that when you go into the waters of baptism, it literally washes away your sin and you become then a new creature. I am glad that my salvation is not based on works, but based on faith alone in Jesus Christ, aren't you? That the moment I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I immediately was a born-again believer. My sins were forgiven at that moment. I am thankful for that. But baptism is an outward showing of what has already happened. Now, let me tell you something. In 21st century America, and probably more so in 20th century, because 21st century America is really becoming post-Christian, baptism in some ways, I think, has been, I don't want to say cheapened because we still understand the meaning, but the meaning is somewhat lost. For instance, in the time of Christ, and still today in many nations, when you are baptized, your family will literally disown you, period. Because you have now declared to the world that I am a follower of this Jesus Christ. Jews to this day will still disown their family members who will outwardly show that following of Jesus Christ. Muslims will do the same thing. As a matter of fact, Many of them will go a step further, and now you are the infidel and deserve to die. Am I not right? People throughout church history have been persecuted for baptism. Even the Catholic Church, that calls themselves Christian, has throughout history persecuted those who believe in believers' baptism. The term "Anabaptist" has the idea of a rebaptizer, and they say, "Why are you baptizing again? You already were baptized as an infant into the Catholic Church?" And the true believer is saying, "Because I had no choice then, but when I read the scripture, the scripture says, "Baptism is for believer, and when I accepted Christ, I then needed to be baptized, not rebaptized, but baptized as a believer. So Throughout history, there have been those that the Catholic Church has taken, and I forget several of them, there are several that this happened to, but they would take them and hog tie them, put them on a boat, take them out to the middle of the lake and say, okay, you want to be baptized, push them over the thing and drown them. So in some ways, baptism has been, the understanding of baptism has been lost. Let's put it that way. But when I'm baptized, what am I picturing? Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, now let's look at Romans 6.3 and how does Paul apply that then to us? So I am now dead to sin and raised in a newness of life. When I was born again, I still had the old nature, but the power of the old nature, the power of sin over me has been broken. I am dead, and God has created in me a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? There's a new creature in me. So now I have an old nature, which is the flesh, which default is sin. But now I also have a new nature, which is following godliness and righteousness. I have the indwelling Holy Spirit within me. And the two, Paul says, are at battle with one another. If you don't believe that, read the very next chapter here, Romans chapter 7, and you're going to think, if you don't understand what Paul is saying, you're going to think Paul is mad because it says, the things I would do, I don't do, and the things I wouldn't do, I do. And he goes through this whole battle that if you and I are honest with ourselves, Christian, have experienced before we understand the victory that we can have in Christ, because I want to serve Christ, but I end up keep sinning. And I don't want to sin, but I keep doing it anyhow. I want to do what's right, but I have a hard time doing it. And that's why chapter six is so important is so that we can understand how to have that victory in our Christian life. So we are dead. Baptism pitchers are dying to sin and raised in the newness of life. So we can have victory over the old nature and we have his divine nature imparted to us. So this newness of life, and, and we word studies, it says, the newness of life here does not refer to a new quality of experience or conduct, but to a new quality of life imparted to the individual. The newness of life, therefore, refers not to a new kind of life the believer is to live, but a new source of ethical and spiritual energy imparted to him by God, which by which he is enabled to live the life to which Paul exhorts in Romans 12 through 16. So what is we saying? He's saying this newness of life is not the turning over of a new leaf. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, before I come to God, I got to change some things in life. The unfortunate thing is, is too often many times Christians still think this newness of life is exactly that. I've got to do something. I've got to change. I've got to stop my drinking and smoking and chewing and running around with women who do and all that stuff. I got to change it. I got to fix it. The thing is, is you cannot in your own power change it. So the newness of life is not talking about you making a change. What the newness of life is talking about is God has imparted in you a new creature that empowers you to be able to do so. It's the power of the Holy Spirit of God is what it is. So this newness of life is not your power. It is a new thing placed inside of you to give you the power now to serve God. The newness of life is not your power. It is the power of the Holy Spirit placed in you that can make the change. Now, that's extremely important because, again, many times in counseling, people, I've tried, Pastor, I've tried. I know you have, but you know what the problem is? You tried in the flesh, and the flesh is going to fail. You can't. You cannot live the Christian life in the flesh. It will not work. It cannot work. We looked at the first illustration. Now, let's go to verse uh, well, let's look at verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of Father, even so shall we walk in newness of life. Verse 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, what does this planting have the idea? We're planted together in his death, united with, or sharing in. We says it could also be used as Siamese twins. So, in the same way that Christ died, you and I have died to the old nature. We've died to sin and were raised in his resurrection. Now, in Philippians 3.10, did Paul not say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection? Because again, it's the resurrection power that enables us to be able to live the Christian life. Death has already been conquered. By Jesus Christ death is a defeated enemy is it not this week two good friends of mine were buried went to the funeral of one because both funerals are at the same time and I could not get to both of them but you know as we sat there Grace Baptist Church for the funeral of pastor Clyde Eburn, the beauty of it is as I know while he has died physically He is more alive today than I am. And I'm a little bit jealous because he's in the presence of Christ. If you remember just a year or so ago, Pastor Billy Wingard passed away. And so those two gentlemen, I'm sure, have met up again and are enjoying walking the streets of heaven. But we have power in us to have victory because we have been freed. Let's go to verse 7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. You know, I've never seen anybody go up to a casket and say, look, here's the work you need to get done today. All right, I need you to do this. And you're demanded I'm going to, you're going to do this. You know, while slavery was a horrible thing that happened in our country, when a slave died, he was freed. The master couldn't make him do any more work. He was freed from that master. So you and I, being dead to sin, are freed from the old master. Isn't that wonderful? I am dead to the old master. Christian, I'm going to keep emphasizing this because this point needs to be driven home. Because the next point is reckoning it so. But we've got to understand the truth. We've got to understand the reality. I am freed from sin. Because I'm dead to sin. You can't hurt a dead man. You know... You can sit there and make fun of a dead man all day and he'll never be offended by it. By the way, I did not go up to the casket at Pastor Ebern's funeral. Somebody went up there and they said, that's not the Pastor Ebern I know. I said, that's why I hate open caskets. I think it's one of the dumbest ideas we ever do because, I'm sorry, a dead body looks dead. I don't care how much you paint it, how much you try to make it look like it's a live person. They're dead and they look dead close the stupid casket, save the money, dig a hole, throw me in it, and go have a party rejoicing because I'm going to be better off than you are, okay? Promise me you're going to do that when I pass on, if the rapture doesn't happen first. So we're freed from the penalty of sin. Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. I want you to understand something. As Jesus Christ was dying on the cross at Calvary, we're told that the sun refused to shine, that Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And 2 Corinthians Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he became sin. Our sin was placed on Jesus Christ. I want you to think about this. The perfect Lamb of God became my sin as he died on the cross at Calvary. What a thought. But I, by his sacrifice, have been redeemed. I've been freed from the penalty of sin. I never will have to spend a moment in the fires of hell because I am redeemed. The penalty of sin no longer applies to me because my sin was placed on Christ and his righteousness was placed on me. Now I want you to think of that. Because when that truth grasps your heart, this whole concept of, well, once saved, always saved, so therefore we can just sin all we want, You're not going to want to sin when you realize what Jesus Christ had to suffer to pay for my sin and free me from the penalty of sin. But at the moment of salvation, we were redeemed or we were washed. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. I love those words. You were that, but you're no longer that. You know, what I was before I was saved doesn't matter. You know why? It's what I was. It's not who I am. Now, I understand sometimes in order to help another individual, we might not need to say, I understand where you are because I've been there. But I see way too often in Christianity almost a glamorizing of the past. You know what I'm talking about? Some people always want to talk about, you know, all their experiences in the bars and all their experiences with all these things. And it doesn't seem so much as a, Hey, that's what I was, but I am washed. I am redeemed. But it's almost as if they're rejoicing in what they used to be. And I think we've all heard them and those individuals I find to be concerning because where's their focus? Their focus should be on, yeah, I was all that, but I don't really want to talk about that anymore because that's the past. Let's talk about where I am. And it's not anything that I've done, but let me tell you about the one who made me who I am today. Because our focus needs to be on Christ. So we're dead to sin. We are freed from the penalty of sin. But then this passage is truly talking about we're freed from the power of sin. So since I am dead to sin, I'm alive in Christ, and he in me, And I no longer have to serve sin. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I need to realize daily, I need to die to self and allow Christ to have his rightful place on the throne of my heart. You see, because the old flesh wants to get off the cross and get back down on the throne of my life, doesn't it? But I got to remind myself daily, and I've got to die to self daily, saying, No, I am dead to sin. Self, you belong on the cross. Jesus Christ belongs on the throne. And sometimes, more than once daily, we have to do this, do we not? Because that old flesh likes to rear its ugly head. But it's dead! It is dead! And we need to not allow it to resurrect itself. We need to keep reminding, be reminded, the flesh is dead, it's dead, it's dead. And the life that I now live is not me. It is Christ living in me. Christ living in me. And when others see me, they should not look at Jim Corr. They should see Jesus Christ living in me. That's what they should see. You say, well, this is all real nice talk. No, Christian, this is the Christian life in reality the way God wants it to be lived. We've got to stop making the excuses. I can't, I can't, I I just can't help myself. I'm going to end up falling. I'm going to end up failing. We can have victory in Jesus Christ because we are dead to sin and we are alive in Jesus Christ. I'm alive in Christ. Now that's a total different life than what I used to have. And life is no longer about me. It is about Jesus Christ. Our time is coming to a close. I knew we wouldn't get through this. I didn't expect to get through this. Because this is just point number one of the reality of our freedom. The reality of our freedom. But the last point I want to make about this is we are freed from sin. We're freed from the penalty of sin. We're freed from the power of sin. And praise God, someday we're going to be freed from the presence of sin. I can't wait till the moment the rapture happens. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Let me tell you something. When the trumpet sounds, That flesh that is dead will no longer have opportunity to rear its ugly head. You know why? Because it's going to be done away with. I'm going to be freed from the presence of sin and be with Jesus Christ for all eternity. Can I get a hallelujah? Now, folks, that is the reality of our freedom. Lord willing, next week, we're going to look at the reckoning of our freedom. Because these things are so, but we don't reckon them to be so, we live defeated. And that's what Paul is going to show us next week, Lord willing, in verses 11 and 12.